Well, I hope your heart has been blessed as we have worshiped together this morning. And we've had the wonderful joy and the wonderful privilege of observing both of these amazing ordinances that are really gracious gifts from the Lord to his church. They are intended to bring us joy. So I hope as you saw three of our sisters in Christ publicly identify today through baptism, I hope your heart was joy-filled about that. And as we sang together about the mercy of the Lord, and as we thought about what the Lord did to give us that mercy, the breaking of his own body on the cross, the shedding of his blood that led to his death, by which that mercy was extended to us, I, I hope that your heart was refreshed by this. And that's really why the Lord gave us these ordinances as a church. Uh, let me just remark to you as you turn to James chapter 2 that these ordinances are not intended as a means of saving grace. And I think it's important for us to rehearse that as a church because even in our day and age, even in an environment that somebody described in the prayer time this morning as the Bible Belt of South Carolina, we still need reminders that there is no meritorious saving grace that is communicated to the participants of baptism by baptism, and there is no meritorious saving grace that is communicated to you or to me or imparted to you or to me as we observe communion, the Lord's table. These ordinances were not intended for sinners who had not yet come to embrace the saving, wonderful grace of God that comes through faith alone in Christ alone. Another way of saying that is that these uh, wonderful gifts that the Lord has given to us were intended for genuine believers who have embraced the gospel, experienced the saving grace of God, and have gladly submitted to the authority and lordship of Christ over their life. And so what I want to do this morning as we talk about displaying a living faith to a dying world, the two ordinances that we celebrated this morning are important to us because they become important means of accomplishing that. James has been reminding us that a true faith, a genuine faith, the authentic article, as it were, the real faith that makes a saving difference in the life of a believer is a faith that should be displayed to a dying world. And as we have been letting James navigate for us, he has led us to conclude that that kind of a faith is marked by these things. It is wholehearted. It is single-focused, and it is fully trusting in Christ. We said that a number of times last week, if you remember. Can we say it again? A living faith to a dying world is wholehearted. It is single-focused. It is fully trusting. And I want to say that every time we come together around James so that that remains with us long after we close out our series on James. And one of the ways in which... God has given to us to do that are these gracious ordinances. Let me give you just a few things that I want you to think about as you think about the two ordinances, because it's a little bit unusual, at least in, in my experience, 
to have a Sunday where we have the opportunity to do both baptism and the Lord's table. It was really sweet today, and I hope it was truly refreshing. But let me give you a few things that I think uh, you and I need to keep in mind. Why are baptism and the Lord's Supper so precious to us? I mean, if somebody really sat down and said to you, why are they precious? Not why do you do them? We do them because we go to this church and this church does them. That's not, that's not the question. Why are these ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, why are they precious to us as a church and why should they be precious to you and to me as believers? Let me give you a couple of thoughts about that. Number one, they ought to be precious to us because they are gracious commands from the Lord. Baptism is the initial act of obedience after we embrace the gospel. Matthew 28, 19 says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That gives us the command. Romans chapter 6 gives us significance to that command. Listen to Paul. He says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from dead, from the dead by the glory of the Father, we also might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. That's why Pastor Rusty and Pastor Hiro, if you remember at the very end, said raised to walk in a new life, in newness of life. The Lord's Supper is the ongoing reminder of that obedience. It is the ongoing renewal of that obedience. Listen to how Paul talks about this. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you announce, you proclaim, you display the Lord's death till he come. Every time we take the Lord's table, it is our affirmation of what Jesus did to deliver us from our sins. It is not the initial act of obedience, but is the ongoing renewal of that obedience on a day-by-day, week-by-week, month-by-month, year-by-year basis. So they are gracious commands to the, to the church. Secondly, they are intimate expressions of God's grace. Paul said to the Corinthians in chapter 10, The cup of blessing that we bless, the cup that we just took, God says to you, this is a cup of blessing, and we bless that cup. We pray over that cup. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? There is an intimate thing that happens between us and the Lord when we observe these sacred ordinances. Number three, they are important identity markers. 
they identify his people. Matthew 28, 19, we read earlier, we were told to baptize new converts in the name. And then we are given the triune name of God in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit. James reminds us in chapter 2, verse 7, that we have been called by this name. And so as we enter into that name and as we receive the Lord who gave us that name, we are publicly identified with that name in our baptism and we constantly have communion with that name and we fellowship with that name and that is commemorated in our regular observation of communion. So it is an important identity marker. And number four, they are corporate and communal in their nature. 1 Corinthians 11.33, So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. These are not private things that we do in our own homes. This is not a family getting together and saying, you know what, I think we're just going to take the Lord's Supper together as a family. Or this is not somebody saying, you know what, I think I'd like to get baptized and I want Dad to baptize me in the the swimming pool in our backyard. That's, That's not a proper observance of these ordinances. These ordinances were given to be observed in a church. This is not something that a particular ministry in a church gets to do on their own. This is something that the whole church witnesses and the whole church participates in, and you can see it there in 1 Corinthians 11.33. This is why this morning we brought our deaf ministry here so that you could witness the baptism of one of their Uh, participants who is a member of our church. And so this is why we don't do these things in a private sort of personalized way. They're corporate and communal in their nature. They are individual in their participation. Nobody can be baptized for you. There is a religious group that believes that you can be baptized for another person. According to the scripture, you cannot do that. You must be baptized for yourself and you must take the Lord's table yourself. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight makes the case particularly for the Lord's table uh, when it says, let a person examine himself. Then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. They are marked, number six, by joyful thankfulness in their observation. Paul said it is a cup of blessing. It's joyful. And in the night that the Lord took this Uh, cup and he broke this bread and he inaugurated this for the church, he had given thanks before all of this. And so that's why we have these prayers of thanksgiving before we take the bread and we eat the cup. They are marked by joyful thankfulness. And then finally, they are refreshing and strengthening in their celebration. Paul said, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you announce the Lord's death until he comes. Our, our, our relationship with the Lord is refreshed. Our commitment to the Lord and to the mission he has given to us is renewed. But there is more. And that's what I want to focus us on this morning out of James chapter 2. What is the more? And I want to come back and ask this question, what is it that makes baptism possible And what is it that makes the Lord's table possible for people like us? 
And the answer, very simply, is what we have been singing about all morning and what we have been celebrating together in our scripture reading and what we have been articulating gratefulness for in our praying. And it is simply this, baptism and the Lord's table are possible for you and they're possible for me and they're possible for us because of the incredible mercy of Christ that triumphed over the judgment that belonged to us. And James is going to make this case in four statements that I want to give you this morning. Here's the first. Number one, James is going to take time in chapter two to remind us of the ongoing presence of the law. And that's where we have to start this morning. If we're ever going to get to mercy, we have to go through the law. And so that's where James starts. Notice how he says it in verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, and then he's going to articulate one half of that law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, if you fulfill the royal law that's according to the scriptures, and you love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. It's interesting that James describes this law as royal here in this verse. It's royal because it expresses the will of a sovereign. It it, it expresses the will of a king. And it's royal because it becomes the governing rule of his kingdom. And so James is going to remind you that as you think about what he's talking about, you are under obligation to a king. The king has expressed his will. It's described as a perfect law in chapter 1, verse 25. Listen to how James talks about it here. But the one who looks, the idea there is who who gives careful thought, who peers intently, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty. So this isn't, uh, you know, James is describing this as as a full law, a a complete law. It describes the character of God, the heart of God. It fully expresses the will of God, and it is contained in the Word of God. Now, Paul has another way of describing this same law. James says it's a royal law, and then he says it's a perfect law. But Paul says this, it is a law that brings sin and death. It is the law of sin and death. Listen to how he describes this in Romans chapter 8, verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. And here's what it set you free from. It set you free from the law of sin and death. It set you free from the law that marks out sin and condemns sinners to death. How did that happen? Listen to Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. We know, Paul says, that whatever the law speaks or whatever it articulates or whatever it says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the entire world, the whole world, may be held accountable to God. And then he says this, for by works of the law, if you think that you're going to keep this law and get somewhere, Paul says, let me tell you about this law. The works of this law 
No human being will be justified in his sight. There will be no human being who will be justified in his sight who got that justification because they did the works of this law. And here's why. Since through the law comes the knowledge of our sin. So Paul says this is the law of sin and death. All right? So it's the royal law. It's the perfect law. It's the full and complete expression of God's character, of God's heart, and of God's will. And it, is, it, it produces for sinners the knowledge of sin and the sentence of death. But James has a fourth way of talking about the law. He says this, it is the law of liberty. It is the law of liberty. Look how he describes this in verse uh, 12. of of this text. He says here, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And in Romans chapter 8, there is now no condemnation. Who is doing the condemning? The law. There is no condemnation anymore from the law for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because a different law, the law of the Spirit, who brings life, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. How did that happen? For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The ones who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to to the Spirit. This is a stunning statement. The royal law, the perfect law, the law that exposed our sin and sentenced us to death for a unique group of people has been transformed into a law that actually brings life and liberty. And it didn't come because somehow these people found a magical way to keep the law. It came because somebody else kept that law for them and released them from its obligation and from its condemnation. And the righteousness that was accomplished by that person was actually applied to this group of people. And these are the people for whom the law has now become a friend. For these people, the law is their enemy. The law is the accuser who stands before the judge and points out all of the ways in which they fall short of the will of God and they violate the character of God and they go against the heart of God. And the law stands there and says, here are all the ways in which you have done that. And the law has absolutely no ability to solve that anymore than you standing in a line and there is a ruler at the end of that line and says, if you're going to go in here, you have to be this tall. And you get there and that ruler is going to show you your shortcoming. It's going to show you your shortcoming. (laughs) But it has no ability to magically grow you. So that as you stand there, all of a sudden you shoot up and you are now tall enough to go in. That isn't what happened. What happened is 
somebody came and met that obligation for you. And so this now becomes a law of life. Now, what is it about these people that differentiates them from those people? Because at one time, these people used to be over there. So what differentiates these people? And there is one differentiation. These people have a member of the Trinity living inside them. And that member of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who has permanently indwelt them has given to them a new heart and he's given to them a new power. And that's where James is going when he talks about this being the law of liberty. So he wants to remind us of the law. Now remember, we're getting to mercy and we had to start with law. The second thing that James does, he just he were, he's just reminded us of the law. He's going to reveal the one who stands behind the law, right? There's somebody who stands behind the law. There is an all-knowing, authoritative lawgiver. And James wants you to understand who he is. Listen to how he talks about this in chapter 2, verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, and then he articulates that, and then in verse 11... He says, for he who said, there's somebody who articulated the law. He who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you don't commit adultery, but you commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged. So somebody now isn't just articulating the law, he is now judging the people who live under that law. And, and James says, now, there is a group of people, and when that one who stands before the law judges them, the judgment will be merciless. It will be without mercy. And there's another group of people, when they stand before that one who spoke the law, and they stand before that one who is judging them, judgment will be vanquished by mercy. Something will triumph over that mercy. Something, something will triumph, rather, over that judgment. Something will overwhelm that judgment. And what will overwhelm and avalanche that judgment and wash it out of the way is mercy. So there is a lawgiver whose omniscience enables him to evaluate accurately and render judgments that are fully righteous. There is a perfect lawgiver who articulated his law and he put it in Scripture. And he expects what he put in Scripture to be obeyed. Psalm 119 verse 4 says, You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. And, and, and this person who wrote down his expectations in the Scripture expects us to obey them, and he has the authority and the ability as he judges us and all of humanity under the law, either to save us or to destroy us. That's what James 4.12 says. Nothing escapes his notice. No one escapes his judgment. That is a stunning thing. We don't think that way as human beings. You didn't wake up this morning thinking, all right, now you know what? 
I am under God's laws and I am under obligation to obey the scriptures and there are serious consequences for not doing so. You and I don't wake up thinking that. And I would suspect that most of the world doesn't either. I think most of the world wakes up in the morning and they are so concerned about what they have to do that day, they never give thought that at the end of that day, if their life were to come to an end that day, they would stand before someone who would render a completely accurate evaluation of their life. He knows everything. That's the idea of omniscience. He knows everything. He knows exactly what is going on in our hearts. He knows what's going on in our minds. He knows what we did that we shouldn't have done. He knows what we didn't do that we should have done. He knows the motives out of which we did the things that everybody else thought were awesome. He knows why you do what you do. He knows your motives as well as your deeds. And most of us never wake up thinking that one day we are going to stand before the lawgiver who is the perfect judge. He never makes a mistake. He never renders a wrong verdict. And he will always give the right verdict for the right crime. He will never judge wrongly. We often do that, don't we? God never does. Now, James started off by talking about the law. It's a royal law. It's a perfect law. Then we found out, Paul said, wait a minute, that royal law, that perfect law that James is talking about is actually the law of sin and death. And James says, yes, but it has become the law of liberty for a certain group of people. And you can recognize those people because they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They exist in a unique category. And then James says, now, in in addition to the law, let me just remind you of the lawgiver. Behind that law is an authoritative lawgiver who isn't just the lawgiver. He is also the rightful, perfect judge who has the ability to render just judgments, and he has the right to render those judgments. He's omniscient. He's all-powerful. And so James says, here's the third thing I want to remind you of as a believer. Now, think about who James is writing to. He's not writing to this group. He's writing to this group. He's writing to people who have the Holy Spirit. And he has a shocking statement to make to them. He's going to review their shocking position. He says, you are convicted by this law. You're convicted by the law. You have done something that has transgressed the law. And it is very, very serious. Look at verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. When we come back to this passage in our journey through James, you're going to find out that James is actually saying something that they were saying. They're, they're, They're gathering together and they're saying we're so thankful for the perfect law and we're doing it. Look how we love one another. And James says, okay, if you're really loving one another, you do well. However, he's going to reveal something. If you show partiality, you are committing sin. Think about the strength of that statement. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and you are convicted by the law as a transgressor. He is talking to people 
who have come to know Jesus Christ, who have come to embrace the gospel, and who have experienced the mercy of God and should be displaying a wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith. And what that should look like, that single-focused faith should look like, that, that one faith that comes into their life should look like, it should look like this at a very basic level, It should look like you are wholly committed to God. You love the Lord your God with all your heart. And you love your brother. And James says, before I even talk about this side of the relationship, your love with God, let me just point out some things about your claim to be loving your brother. What happens when a rich man comes into your midst? If, if, James, you know, if you were sitting there listening to James talk, it would get real quiet. You, you, ever, you ever been in a group where, where it's exciting and the guy up there is talking and everyone's like, hey, man, this is awesome. And then he says something and it's like, whoa, it just got real quiet. And you start nudging. You're like, this is going to get good here. You, you know what I'm saying? This is what's going on with James. James has just launched a bomb. He says, okay, you say you love your neighbor. Let's talk about that for a second. Here comes a man into your midst, and when you look at his fingers, it's like he's many gold rings on each finger. He's gold-fingered is how the text says it. And his garments are shining. I mean, the minute he walks in the door, you're like, whoa. And you start, I wonder who that is. I mean, maybe he's, maybe he's a high up in our, in our city council or, man, that's awesome. I mean, and you can just tell by how he's dressed and how he comes into church that he has high rank and he has a lot of wealth. And right behind him comes another brother. And you don't even notice that brother because you're so stunned by the beauty of the garments and the rank and the wealth of this other man who walked into your church. <laughs> And here's what you do. You run over to that brother and you're like, hey, I'm so glad you're here today. Hey, we've got a great seat for you. You know what? Uh, it gets a little loud in here, so you don't want to sit right down front, but you don't want to sit in the back either. We've got this perfect place for you. And, 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 you know, hey, you guys move over a little bit. We've got brother so-and-so. He's going to sit right here. And the other brother who walked behind him, you never even noticed. You never spoke to. But the ushers did because they took one look at him and they're like, wow, I wonder if this guy's homeless. I wonder if this guy's strung out on something. I, I don't know. He just, his clothes are filthy. It just, I mean, and, and we're going to talk about this when we actually get to this passage. And they say, look, um, we have a place for you, but it's like back here. It's, it's over here, out of the way. We're, we're glad you're here, but you just sit here and, and don't disrupt things. And James says, I want you to think about that. You say, I've never committed adultery, and I've never committed murder, and I've kept the law, and so I'm good with God, but you just showed partiality, which God hates. God is not a God of partiality. God does not evaluate people. In fact, if you're going to show partiality, you completely missed how God would do it. God has chosen the poor person to be rich in faith. 
That's the person you should be honoring. And instead, you got so blinded by the wealth and the power and the beauty of the garments of the rich man that you forgot that that most rich people in your town hate you and they hate the name by which you were called and they are persecuting you and they are dragging you into the courts. But that's the person you want to honor. And the person who is rich in faith the person who loves God and who is a legitimate heir of the kingdom, that's the person you want in a corner so that he doesn't disrupt anything and make it messy for you. You say, well, that never happens in churches like ours. Really? Are you kidding me? It happens to churches like ours all the time. Somebody comes in and they don't look like us. They don't wear a tie or they don't have a coat or they, you know, they, they have piercings that you don't have or they have tattoos that you don't have. And you're like, wow, I sure hope that person came to hear the gospel today. I hope, I'm so glad he's here. Maybe you'll get saved. You just made a judgment. That person may actually have a closer walk with God than you do. But you looked on the outer side of that person and you made an instinctive judgment. We do this all the time. Somebody walks in church and they don't drive the kind of car that you drive or they they don't have the kinds of things. This poor person may have been wearing the only set of clothes he had. And James says, when you do this, you have completely betrayed the heart of God. And you stand convicted as a lawgiver. James reminds them of something important. He reminds them that the law is not a bunch of separate commandments like don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie. The law is a unified expression of God's will that he communicates in multiple ways. But it's one And so you can't break one commandment over here and say, okay, I'm still good because I've kept the law. You haven't kept the law. The law is one thing. It is one unified expression of the heart and the character and the will of God. Who is one? Hear, O Israel, the the, the Lord our God is one. He is unified. His character is one. His mind is one. His will is one. And he's expressing that unified character, that unified heart, that unified will in different commandments. And when you break one, you break all of that will. Think of it this way. If you have a beautiful window in the front of your home, I mean one of these beautiful windows out there, and you've got your son, and he's out there, and he's playing around with his slingshot, and he, and he accidentally lets fly a rock, and it breaks the corner of that window. And you come in, and you sit all of your children down, and he's the only one, so he's the only one sitting there, and you say magnanimously, which of you broke this window? And he says back to you, I didn't break the window. You're like, okay, hang on, let me go back over again. I know I said it in the plural, which of you children, but can you see any other children around? It's just you. So somebody took the slingshot because they thought they were David 
and, and they just didn't have David's aim, and they hit the window, and it's broken. And he said, no, 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 I didn't break the window. I only broke the corner of the window. You're going, no, 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 hang on, okay, here, let me explain something to you. If you break the corner of the window, you break the whole window. I don't just get to replace the corner of the window. I have to replace what? The whole window. James is sitting down, little children, and he's saying to you, you broke the window of God's will. And they're like, no, we didn't. We didn't commit adultery, and we didn't commit murder. Yes, but you showed partiality, which in Leviticus 19, God told you not to do. So it doesn't matter which of the commands you break at the end of the day, if you break even one, the unified window of God's will is shattered, and you stand condemned. And by the way, by the time we get to James chapter 4, these people are committing murder toward one another with their mouth. They are committing adultery in their heart to God. So James is really pointing out here this precarious spot they're in. And let me give you the final thing and we'll close, and that is there is a stunning reversal. James says, you are doing this. You have shattered that will. But here's what you need to remember. You need to speak and you need to act as people who are going to be judged, not under the law of sin and death, but under the law of liberty. And so how did you get there? And the answer is the judge, the lawgiver, sent his own son who fully met every required activity, thought, deed, motive that God's unified will expressed. The one person in the universe, in the history of the human race, who ever fully complied with the unified will of God, his character, his heart, his will, the one person in the universe who fully complied with that was Jesus Christ. And God took all of that obedience and he put it over all of your disobedience. Mercy triumphed. And then in another stunning act, this individual, Jesus, who fully merited eternal life on the righteousness that he had earned, took your punishment. He took your penalty. He took the wrath of God that should have fallen down on your head and he willingly took it on himself so that the, 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 pl- the blessing of God, the, the, the pleasure of God that was falling down on his head could fall down on your head. James says, speak and act as people who have received mercy. And the way that you do that is by yourself showing mercy to others. That's why Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who are full of mercy. Why? Because they will receive mercy. You know, it's the hardest thing, isn't it, to give mercy to others? I'm not talking about the people who just irritate us or maybe accidentally did something, but I'm talking about people who hurt us. It's hard enough to give mercy to a spouse or to a husband or to a son or a daughter. It's hard enough to give mercy to a friend that's disappointed us or hurt us or betrayed us. It's, it's amazingly hard to give mercy to an enemy. 
And that's precisely what you were when you stood under that law of sin and death. While we were yet enemies, God displayed his love toward us. He manifested his mercy to us. And you know, baptism is the identification that we announce to the world. We have received that mercy. Mercy triumphed over our sin. And the Lord's Supper is the ongoing celebration and renewal of that mercy because we know if we show partiality or if we commit any other sin, there is abundant mercy if we confess our sin. He is faithful and just to what? To forgive our sin. So we have a wonderful day today as we've observed in our own midst how mercy triumphs over judgment. And I hope that it has triumphed in your heart. Would you bow with me as we pray? Lord, I do thank you for what James has revealed to us in this simple but stunning truth that mercy, your mercy, triumphs over judgment, your judgment. Lord, there may be people in our midst who are still under the law of sin and death. They are still trying to figure out how to earn enough credit to be accepted to you. Lord, some of them are unsaved this morning. They've never embraced the gospel, but some of us still labor under that because we we think you operate that way, that if we can just earn up enough righteousness, you'll be good to us or you'll, you'll bless us. And James says, no, there's a whole different law. That law has become your friend. It is a law of liberty. It is a law of life. It is a royal law, and the king himself has named you his and has shown you mercy. So, Lord, thank you for your mercy and your grace. Lord, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.